going to open back up to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to open back up to Matthew chapter 14. I got it. Yeah, I turned it on. Yeah. So we're going to open up to Matthew chapter 14. We'll look again at the story of Herod dealing with John the Baptist. As we looked at this morning, we spoke about Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, who took John captive and put him in prison because he spoke out about Herod's unlawful marriage to Herodias, who was his brother, also a Tetrarch, Philip. And so he puts John in prison. And that's where we were going through the story of that this morning, talking about John's pursual, pursuing, pursuance of righteousness, okay, and his determination to call out unrighteousness anywhere, everywhere, no matter who the person was, no matter what political situation they were in, no matter what kind of authority they had, and no matter what the repercussions were. And I think that John, very much like Jesus, had no problem doing that. So when we go forward with this story, something that we need to kind of look at was we talked about this morning the why of why John would do this. We talked about the the purpose of us as representatives of the kingdom of God to do the same, that it is not within our, I guess, excuse book to be able to say, Oh, well, we just didn't know. Oh, well, we just couldn't help it. I mean, when you look at how Jesus was telling his disciples when he sent them out to minister in the world, he told them, you are to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. So the idea of ignorance didn't play in there. All right. So we can't claim ignorance with our own political system today. We can't say, oh, well, I just didn't know. Or it's just outside of. No, you, we are to be wise about these things. And we're to react in a wise manner, not in a goofy, trivial, foolish manner, in a wise manner. Again, of all the people on earth to be able to claim that we, I mean, to be able to show that we have wisdom, we claim that we have the wisest book. In fact, we have the original wisdom here in our possession, and we're the only ones who have it. We claim that we believe in the truth that is God's word and that it supersedes all. It is truth. Any other thing that could be true can only come from God and therefore should reflect him and what he teaches. So, I mean, so we claim that we have this wisdom. In fact, we can claim to be brothers with the source of wisdom. He's like our neighbor. He's our hometown hero. He's the one that we talk to every night. You know, we were flipping through our songbook and you had that song right there beside it. Have a little talk with Jesus makes it right. Okay. You know, that's plenty. We talk to him all the time. The source of wisdom. In fact, the Proverbs will refer to him in that way. It will talk about wisdom in the form of I was with God in the beginning. And I was the one who formed the foundations of the world through wisdom. Okay. So it's not. It's not optional for us to choose wisdom. We are not called as representatives of God to be foolish in these things. We're called to be wise. Wisdom is what allows us to be the peacemakers in these irreconcilable situations. 
It is the wisdom of God that allows us to enter into these situations where you have two people completely at odds with each other, going at each other, talking about how ignorant each side is. It is that situation that we can enter into as the believers in Jesus Christ, the professors of wisdom and the peacemakers of God. I can enter into that space and and, and we can resolve this situation through wisdom as peacemakers. So it's not, it's not optional for us. We are called to be wise. We are called to do what God has called us to do. And so we look now here, though, in this story, and it's, it's interesting to me because we, and I know that, you know, in some ways these were lined up the way they were. The, the chronology of this is not set, okay? So it's not necessarily that the story about Jesus being denied in Nazareth directly, chronologically preceded this story about John, okay? This is how Matthew arranges it, and Mark and Luke do a little different with it, okay? They insert some things there that, that Matthew doesn't talk about. So there's, I mean, there's something with the chronology of this, but I do think it's interesting, though. If we're going to look at it chronologically here from chapter 13 to 14, the last thing he talks about in chapter 13 is going home and being rejected. Going home and being rejected by his people. That you would just you would just hope that they would give you just a, an inch, give you something because you just know me. Hear me out because I've grown up with you. I know you, Johnny. I've grown up with you. We played ball together. Can you not just give me five minutes of your time to hear what I have to say? And we saw that in the end of chapter 13, that wasn't the case. You know, they were like, nope, get out of here. You're just the carpenter's son. How dare you talk to us? Well, here in chapter 14, Herod brings John in and Herod doesn't put John to death right away. Why? Now, Herodias wanted him dead. Herodias was like, here he is out here talking bad about us and what we're doing. And how dare he call us out? We're two grown individuals. We can make our choices. No one is to tell us how we can live life. And here, John the Baptist, he's talking about us in this way. Let's just kill him. You're the king. Put him to death for sedition. And Herod was like, no, I can't do that. Say, well, why? Why couldn't you do that? I don't think you really have a problem killing people. Your, Your daddy sure didn't. Your daddy was okay slaughtering all children two years and under in the, in the whole city of Bethlehem. It's not like you don't have a family history of murdering people without cause. But it says in verse 5, And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Now, again, it's interesting. Why would Herod care about that? Who cares? You know, I don't care. I'm king. I do what I want to do. I'm the ruler. I do what I want to do. Mark's account gives us a little bit more detail into it. Mark's account actually portrays Herod as one who viewed John with a high regard. Okay? So in Mark chapter 6, looking in verse 14, And King Herod heard of him, Jesus, for his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it was Elias or Elijah. And others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. 
But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John, whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, for his, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him. Now remember, he's doing all this for Herodias, okay? And would have killed him, but she could not. Why? For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and a holy and observed him. That means he talked with him. And when he heard him, heard John and the things that he said, he did many things. And he heard him gladly. So he actually liked what John was saying. And then we have when the convenient day was come that Herod on his birthday, sitting in front of all his lords and his high captains, he made the promise to his daughter or to the daughter of Herodias. After she danced for him. Now, what's again crazy about this, this is where I was saying this is belief in unexpected places. All right? This is belief in unexpected places. Now, let me make sure I make this really clear. Herod's belief, quote unquote, in this, in Jesus, was by no means an act of faith. Okay? This was not, I faithfully believe Jesus is Lord. I faithfully believe John is the, you know, whatever. This is just, he's, he is, as I would say, he's a pretty savvy politician. And he's also just, from the natural point of view, he can notice things that John did and go, okay, that has to be not of this world. He can notice things that Jesus did and say, okay, this has to be not of this world. In fact, so much so that when he hears of Jesus' miracles, he says, no, John must have risen from the dead. I mean, now we're getting all into these very fanciful, you know, kind of things that you're coming up with here. But he says, I respect John so much. And what John has to say, I recognize him as a holy man. I recognize him as a prophet. I recognize him as all these things of God. Now, I don't follow God. I'm disobedient to God. I'm not a child. You know, I mean, he's definitely on that line of things. But in all these things, he's going, but I recognize, a. if you want to say it this way, I recognize a good man when I see one. I recognize this holy man when I see one. I recognize that he could not do the things that he's doing except if God be with him. I mean, all throughout the... The New Testament scriptures, you'll have that. I mean, Gamaliel gives that argument in Acts when he's talking about Peter and the other apostles. When they all want to kill Peter and them, Gamaliel says, Hey, here's the deal, guys. You don't have to mess with these guys. If it's of God, you don't want to fight against God. If it's of man, it will eventually come to destruction. So, I mean, that was an argument they had. They can recognize this. Don't think that they are somehow, because they are... They are not born again that somehow it is impossible for them to see when something miraculous happens and understand that that's not normal, okay? That that has to be something that's otherworldly. I mean, you have pagans who would talk about tornadoes being the, re- the responses of pagan gods, okay? So, I mean, it's not unnatural or, or uncharacteristic of a natural person to be able to recognize when something unnatural occurs that God would be the source of that. So Herod here is kind of, hey, I want to see this Jesus, except for the fact that, you know, he might be John the Baptist risen from the dead because of all the miracles he's doing. And he didn't murder John originally because he actually liked John. Says there in Mark that when he was talking with John, he he liked what John had to say to a degree. Herodias didn't like it, but he actually liked John. He had respect for John. 
for who John was. Again, those are no acts of faith. This is not that he's a born-again child of God seeking the truth of God's word or something like that. This is just, he just, he can recognize that. But he recognizes those things. So much so that he was going to give John a pass because of that. And he let John in and he talked to John and entertained John and gave John some space. Prevented John's death. Saved John's life in that way. Now, what's crazy about that is that here's Herod, this unrighteous, ungodly ruler of these Jewish people who is in the act of adultery and fornication, but can still recognize when John, who was not Jesus, but that John was a holy, righteous man of God and deserved respect. Do we capture that? This unrighteous unbeliever gave more respect and room and space and at least listened and actually enjoyed listening to John when the people of Nazareth wouldn't give Jesus the time of day. Do we see kind of the contrast with that? And how sad that is? That his people, again, you would go back to just the I've grown up with you argument. I mean, you have people who maybe you know from high school who are selling something like, I don't know, Cutco or something like that. And you at least let them come in. All right, because you feel bad with them. Yeah, I know. It's just, but it's, it's Jake and I, you know, he's selling Cutco and I want to help him out. Why? Do you know him all that? Well, no, but I mean, we did go to high school together. He's from Corner. He's from Jasper. He's from Walker, whatever. And I'm just going to give him a little, you know, I'm just going to help him out the best way I can. Got to help out your hometown people. They didn't even do that. Jesus comes in and they're like, who are you, carpenter son? Get out of here. We don't want to hear you. We don't recognize your authority. We don't recognize your miracles. We don't recognize anything about you. In fact, we outright reject it. You offend us. Now, of all the people in these two stories, John has been the most offensive. Okay, John's the one that's walking up at Herod going, Herod, dude, you're committing adultery and you can't do this. I mean, looking at the king, looking at the ruler going, you can't do this when the ruler is used to saying, I can do whatever I want because I'm the ruler and who's going to stop me? Here, John's going, no, no, no. By the authority of God, you cannot take Herodias. This is adultery. This is fornication. You cannot do this. You cannot divorce. You know, I mean, he was just, he was laying all this out for him. John was being extremely offensive in that sense. We don't have any account of what Jesus talked to him at Nazareth about. But John's definitely being offensive. And what's the response? Herodias wants to kill him. Herod's like, no, I keep him around. I want to hear him. I like listening to him. We have good conversations. I like learning things from him. I think it's extremely telling of kind of the hard-heartedness of the people of Nazareth in dealing with Jesus when they wouldn't receive Jesus at all, would not even consider what he had to say compared to Herod, who was at least willing to listen to him, who wanted to see him. 
I mean, Herod, based on what he had heard, we learned that over in the end. We, we talked about this about in the end of Luke when Jesus is bought, brought before Pilate, when he eventually gets sent to Herod. Herod's like, oh, yeah, I want to meet this guy. I've heard about what he's had to do. Now, he got a little less than what he was bargaining for because when he got him, you know, Jesus didn't really give him a whole lot. But you had this kind of, <laughs> this degenerate who was excited about seeing Jesus. And then you have these people who were his hometown friends and family and neighbors who couldn't stand to see Jesus. Now, I keep going back to this. Because again, I think it's important for us to truly consider how we view Jesus. Okay? And where he is at in the hierarchy of our lives. Okay? Because, again, I think we do get into the habit of church. We get into the habit of religion. We get into the habit of Christianity. We get into the habit of Jesus. And sometimes the clear, crystal clear things that Jesus taught, we don't want anything to do with. We're, in fact, offended by it. How dare you tell me I'm supposed to love my enemy? Don't you know what my enemy has done to me? Don't you know how my enemy has treated me? What do you mean? Don't you know that, I mean, we have to project power and strength and we can't allow weakness to be seen? I mean, don't you know that we have to? I mean, isn't it true that if they wrong you, you can give back to them as good as they gave to you? Didn't you say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Didn't you? I mean, how, how dare you say I have to love my enemy? How dare you have to say I have to pray for my enemy? How dare you say I have to take care and provide water and food to my enemy? That's not the case. That's not, I, don't, I, don't, I reject that. I mean, we do this on all sorts of different levels. I mean, if you've thought about it recently... Consider for a second, we talk about enemies and we start thinking like we're thinking of other countries and we're thinking of other, you know, populations and stuff like that. People who are at war with us. Now, I want you to bring it back home. You've probably got some enemies that were in your life. OK, people that have mistreated you. We've all been there, done that, bought the T-shirt. OK. And then how's our how's our mentality towards them? Don't you know I'm supposed to be able to be bitter? Don't you understand I'm supposed to be able to be wrathful? Don't you know I'm supposed to be able to... How dare you tell me that I can't do that? The other thing I think about, too, along those same lines is that we make people our enemies who really should not be our enemies. I mean, now that's a that's just on a jealousy, whatever kind of level. But, I mean, think about it in the context of churches. Think about it in the context of denominations. And what I'll say over and over again and continue to say until hopefully the day I die, you know, denominations are not in the Bible. In fact, I could probably grab some verses that would tell you they shouldn't even exist. But for some reason, we have gotten in the habit of church to the point that we will view church and denominations as like that's our battleground. We're battling for people. We're battling for people in the pews. We're battling for all this stuff. And if we're battling each other for credibility or whatever it may be, then guess who we're not battling? We're not battling the darkness, the spiritual wickedness, 
the principalities, authorities, powers, and jurisdictions that are actively fighting against us. You know, I think about this when you're talking about the things and the tricks of the devil. You know, people want to argue about versions of the Bible and want to talk about how one version of the Bible is the devil's handiwork to beguile and dissuade his children. Well, guess what it's done a really good job of? It's really done a great job of separating and creating arguments amongst people within the church. Okay? I haven't nearly ever met a prisoner, okay, who fell victim to the wiles of the devil in the gospel, okay, by another version. But I have seen a lot of churches split. I have seen a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ not speak to each other because of it. So there's a lot of things that we have created as battles and obstacles within the church. And I want to say, those are the things of the devil that is dissuading us from actually pursuing what we were called to do. Think about if the greatest argument you had from one church to the other was how better you could outdo each other in serving the community around you. I mean, we've got probably 12 churches in the Jasper area. We also probably have a large portion of the Jasper. Probably, so I think it actually is. The statistics are that over 50%, I think it's right about there. Don't quote me on statistics because you know about 50% of them are made up on the spot. But 50%, I think, of the population or more in Jasper is at or under the poverty level. What difference could we make if we were especially loving our neighbors? And that would be the other Christians that sit right here and profess. I'm not talking about if you want to get into crazy whatever stuff. I'm talking about people that on a Sunday morning, if you went up and asked them, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the Trinitarian God? Do you believe in God Almighty? I mean, you'd have yeses to all of these things. To our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in Christ who are with us in the kingdom and also have a kingdom-minded mentality. To pursue with them loving our other neighbors and even loving our enemies out there. I just think it's incredibly important for us to grab that. It's incredibly important for us to remember who and what Christ taught us to do and say and love and I mean it's incredibly important for us to really go back to what Christ actually said and then not to live lives that act like we're offended by what he said you know people want to say well Christ it offends me when you talk about my sins I'm not even talking about your sins I'm just talking about what you were commanded to do yeah, I want you to get a little offended if I step on your toes because you're acting in a way that's not, that's not in line with what Jesus taught. But that's not just that you were watching an R-rated movie or you listened to rap music, okay? This is, are we loving like Christ has told us to love? Are we loving our neighbors like He told us to love? Are we loving our enemies like He told us to love? Are we loving our husbands and wives like He told us to love? Are we doing what He said? Or do these things that he taught us, would we rather just have this kind of religious thing where we come here, we feel better about ourselves, and then we go home? We'd rather, I mean, really, and on a Sunday afternoon, I mean, come on. You'd probably feel better if you were at home taking a nap. But do we just do this because it makes us feel better about ourselves? Do we just do this because it's just something that we want? We just, you know, it's just what we do. Or is it because we believe in what Jesus taught 
It doesn't offend us. We want to hear more about it. We want to study it. We want to learn more about it. We want to see, okay, Jesus, you said love your neighbor. Now, how do I put that into play and in what situations and how am I going to make that work in my life? And then we go look at our life and say, okay, here is how I can frame that out. You know, in James, he would say, you say you have faith, you say you believe. Even the devils believe and they tremble. I've used that multiple times to say, I hope we are not being outdone in our belief by the devils. At least they have actions based on it. They tremble at it. They believe so much in the power of God, they tremble, they shake in their boots because they know one day the reckoning is coming. But sometimes we act like, well, this is just, if if it happens, if the opportunity arises then yeah, maybe I will help in this situation. Maybe I'll do what he's asked me to do. But I want us to ask if we're living a kingdom-minded life. We just walked through the parables and we talked about how he describes the kingdom. Are we living a kingdom-minded life? Are we embodying the principles that Jesus lays out for the foundations of his kingdom? Is that what we are? I know sometimes, I mean, you know, I can, we can go back and forth, but I mean, there's, this is stuff that we have to think about and consider. I'm not preaching this and haven't been preaching all this so that we could go away from it and go, man, that was, was, I know probably some people are going, that wasn't really that good. And I really wish they'd quit, wish Brother Charles would come back so that he quits getting stuck up here. But, you know, there's this point of it. I'm not preaching these things because I want us to walk away and go, man, I feel really good about myself. Man, I'm glad I went to church because it just makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. And I feel like I did a good religious thing. Now I can go out and, you know, I can punch my card and say, well, I did that. That's not how I do this. I do this because, yes, there is the benefits of that. And you should feel good, okay, when you get out of here and realize what the true image of God is and that it's something that is extremely obtainable for us. That we were made in His image and then we were remade into a new creature just like Him. We were made for this. I mean, if you ever have questioned your purpose in life because you were wandering aimlessly or didn't know or life didn't work out the way you thought it would or whatever it may be. If you were ever questioning that, you can always go back to when we've gone through this. And I think the thing that we see the most in this is you can go back and go, oh, but look, Jesus made me with a purpose. Now, he didn't say that I wasn't going to be a janitor. I was going to be a CEO. He just said, wherever you're at, you have a purpose in it. And the purpose is to further grow, preach, teach, live the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is there in the janitor's closet. And it is there in the CEO's office space. It is there at school. It's there at work. It's there in our families. When you get stuck at home with kids and you go crazy because you can't watch one more episode of Legos Ninjago or whatever it may be. When you just get so tired of whatever it is, you can go back and go, yeah, but look, this is the kingdom right here. These kids are gifts of God that are with me and I get to nurture and grow them and hopefully they will go out and they will fight alongside me in the kingdom and we will all continue to pursue this kingdom living. 
Are we fighting for the kingdom? Are we fighting against our morality in all forms and in all places? And do we do this consistently? You know, the worst thing that I can think of is for Christians who profess they say they're Christians to get out, to get on Facebook and other things like that, and act in a manner which is contrary to what we believe. Because unfortunately, and no matter how much we would not want it to be this way, unfortunately, we are our own worst enemies on any given day. And that's not just as Christians, that's just as individuals. We are our own worst enemies. We are our own worst enemies when we get out there and we let things slip off our tongue that then we try to claw back in and we can't get it back in and then it's just, it's done. And it's sometimes it's irreparable. There's things said, done, actions done, whatever it may be that you can't, it's, it's done. Hurt feelings, lost friendships, whatever it may be, it just, it's done. And there's so many times you can look back and go, man, I wish I could have said something different. Man, I wish in that situation I had said the right thing that would have made this a peacemaking situation versus a division situation. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, but in the end we are our own worst enemies. That's why we preach grace. (laughs) That's why we're thankful that even when we are our own worst enemies, Jesus is forgiving and loving enough and compassionate enough on us that he said, hey, you know what? You're going to screw up, right? That's evident. We have kind of a seven, 8,000 year history of that, okay? We're going to screw up. Even on our best day with our best equipment and our best life and everything, we still screw up. But do we live in the idea that, well, it's just going to happen and I can't avoid it? Or do we fight? Are we fighting consistently for righteousness? Are we fighting consistently for holiness? Are we fighting for the kingdom of God in that way? And let me just tell you, we have no greater... There's been no greater time that we have been needed to fight in authenticity and trueness than now. Because all it takes is a lot of junk to come across Facebook for everybody to think Christians are a bunch of stupid, ignorant bigoted hate mongers. And I don't think any of us in this room would say that's our label, is it? Well, how are they going to know that? By posting more memes on Facebook? Please do not. Oh, by living life. Me and Brother Alan were talking about this at, at lunch. Think about this. You know, back to kind of some of the political stuff we were talking about this morning. When the church started affecting the Roman Empire, within a hundred years, you had, or more, you had almost a majority Christian influence in that empire. And that did not come because they elected the right politicians. It didn't become because they made the right Supreme Court justice picks. And it didn't become because they had the right president in office. None of that stuff was available. In fact, for the first hundred years, the church was extremely persecuted. They were a minority crazy fringe group who needed to die. And yet somehow within that hundred years, you have a complete reversal and the majority of the Roman population were followers of Christ. So much so then that you have like Constantine trying to join on the bandwagon to save his own skin. But all that being said, they did that not by some kind of political action committee. They did it with this really crazy, I know off the wall weird thing They were just doing what Christ told them to do. 
And they were doing it with their neighbors and their friends and their enemies. They were loving, praying, and taking care of those politicians that were trying to round them up and kill them. And they were also loving and taking care of people in plague quarters who had no, who had no kind of benefit for them, had no kind of rep- you know, nothing to give back. They just said, hey, you know what? I move with compassion on these people just like Christ did, and I'm going to go heal and help them. And there were Roman emperors who wrote about these crazy, weird Christians who would hang back in cities that were infected with plague and take care of the people after everyone else had fled and left. And they go, man, they sure are nuts, but look at what they're doing. And it's that kind of stuff where it came down to marriages and idolatry and all that stuff that the Christians, just by being who they were created to be, turned the world upside down. So I want us to remember that because I think we fall back too hard on, well, my Christian duty is to vote for the right person. And if I do that, then they will install some kind of Christian morality within the country. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that has never happened, nor will it ever happen. Okay. We're not going to be able to change people's minds or influence people's lives for the kingdom of God by voting the right way. You're going to do it by living the right way consistently. And by preaching the peace and the joy and the love and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So again, I hope these things have been beneficial in this and we'll move on and we'll talk about the rest of chapter 14 hopefully next time. But I want you to keep in mind with that, go revisit this again. Read back through this chapter. Read in chapters ahead. Get kind of a bookend approach to this. Look at what we're going to be talking about and kind of get it in your mind so that when we come back and we talk about this next week, we are still, we're, we're keeping this kind of train of thought going. Okay, And in this week... Let us pursue the kingdom. May God bless us to do that.